hi and welcome back to attention bliss podcast on the talking stuff network this is episode 11 recorded on 7th october india time today we talk about the sabarimala verdict durga puja in the us and starring in our feature story is a bawling but furious brett kavna of course we won't be doing any of this if we didn't have arnab with us so welcome back arnab and uh, this is a monday morning uh, not our usual time how are you i'm doing good i'm doing good uh, we couldn't record again for those of and for those of you who were expecting a podcast on sunday there was some problem with uh, zencaster which is the software we used to do this podcast so your connections were dropping out in and out so we thought would, discretion is the better part of valor so we decided to postpone it uh, to a time when the underlying technology would be a little bit more supportive and it is at least today so uh keeping my fingers crossed So thank you all for uh, rejoining this 11th episode of the Attention Please podcast. Um again once again uh we have a Patreon page where if you like this podcast uh you may want to become a monthly patron. Uh contributions can be anything from $1 to total amount of kickbacks received in bofers per month. I, <laughs> uh it's totally up to you. Uh again my We say that again, but you know, in the, at the end. But my Twitter handle is at Great Bong, and uh, let's start. Yep, let's get right down to uh, this. Actually, happened. This actually happened. So one thing I wanted to talk about with respect to Tanushri Datta is, and I'm not going to go into what happened, how happened. I just want to say one thing that I will back Tanushri Datta up on is that this. and i think people have said this but I, I, whenever i see any news news event on tanushri datta i find a lot of tanushri datta denied saying where were you all these 10 years she actually said exactly the same story 10 years ago this was carried i remember following the story in 2008 when it happened so and nothing in her story has changed since then it was exactly the same story so i just wanted to say that because i've been hearing this again and again in in, in new stories you know where was she for the last 10 years well, she actually did say it 10 years ago it was just that the predominant culture uh the media culture in general india was a very different country 10 years ago i think not just india but the whole world has moved in the last 10 years and now she she can expect people to hear her story uh at least to give her the time uh be sensitive be sympathetic but 10 years ago these things are true that she did say it and after that she did not have a career anymore in bollywood um she was in you know she was never in the a list but she was fairly regular in the next rung so she was doing movies i remember because in 2008 i used to really follow hindi movies i don't follow them as much now so just follow a few marquee movies as i've said i've kind of moved away from you know traditional hindi movies but in 2008 i did and i i remember she used to do a lot of movies which you know did fairly decent business she was a solid solid middle level actress and uh, there could be no other explanation for why she went from that to absolutely nothing within a year or so so it there was always more to it than met the eye and again she did say it she said the same story then yes moving on i uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the sabarimala verdict now this is a very emotive issue and uh, i'm not going to go i mean there's let's it is very difficult to talk about this verdict first of all it is very difficult to even evaluate things because i'm not a believer so i don't have faith so it's 
it's a very important issue where does constitutionality trump faith? Uh, in India, we have had a very tenuous relationship with secularism. So we don't interpret secularism in the European ideal of secularism, which is a more Marxist de definition where we basically don't believe in anything. In India, our secularism, the way it was defined is we believe in everything. So there is a, there's a problem with that in the sense that uh, it's very difficult to see whether, and again, I'm talking, I'm saying this from the point of view of not being a lawyer, not being a constitutionalist. So I accept what I say may be wrong or maybe my wrong interpretation, but I don't think that we specifically, specifically come down on the side of constitutionality over religion. And the reason I say this is because let's just first look at the look at this verdict and, and just start to understand the logic that's being given. So in any let's let's take a very trivial but very extreme example. Let's say I don't want to have Vikram Mohan come to my house. Okay, I'm not saying I don't, but let's just assume. Uh, there's nothing that Vikram Mohan can do about it. Because for a house, it's my personal property. Um, and the policy is basically default deny. So nobody has a right to come into my house unless I explicitly allow them to. So in this case, it is a private property because many people, this is often used to say, you know, you know, that this is a private, this is not a government entity. You know, people can decide who to let in and who can't, who they can't. It becomes the moment I start running a shop, start running a business, it changes because then it is default allowed. At this point of time, I cannot distinguish according to the laws based on anything, even though it's a private establishment. So that's why you can't have, uh, you know, uh, we still do have private clubs where you say, you know, you have to wear this kind of clothes, but you can't say, and again, I I, I would say you should not be allowed to do that. Uh, but again, there, there are gray areas in the law and there are gray areas of logic also. But you can't say that I will have an exclusive club which does not allow this class of people. That's not constitutional in, in my and if somebody challenges that, I think they will lose. Again, I, I, I don't know lawyers can argue one way this day, another way that day. So what I believe to be logical does not necessarily mean that it would stand in court, but just from the point of view of logic. Um, in the case of a, a temple, okay, in a case of a mosque, it, the problem is conflated by faith. And here's where I believe and there is a huge protest going on right now against Sabarimala. Against it's not it's not getting a lot of attention uh, in in the press because of you know well-known biases, but there is a huge movement going on, and it's been taken as as a judgment against uh, the Hindu faith or against popular belief. And uh, on the principle, I don't agree. On principle, I feel that uh, this. If constitutionality trumps faith, then you cannot deny admittance to anyone to a place which is default admit if that person wants to be there. It's absolutely fine for people to say we will wait. That's absolutely fine. You have a choice. You have a choice to wait. Nobody should be able to prevent you from taking the choice. But if somebody, if there exists even one person who wants to enter, then from a purely constitutional point of view, you have to let that person enter. Otherwise, it's discrimination. Uh, but again, we're not taking into account the matter of faith. Now, faith is, of course, a double-edged sword. Uh, people could say, you know, 
triple talaq is a matter of faith. So you'll have to you'll have to have it, even though it 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 flies in the face of human rights, constitutionality. It's a matter of faith, and sometimes I feel the same people who are you know opposing the Sabani Mala are, are, are supporting the other one. I just don't feel that you can do both. Uh, but here's where the here's where the problem is, because in the case of triple talaq, I've heard a strong argument being that this is not Islamic. The logic was that this is not even a faith-based thing. That was the first thing that had to be established. And then you could pass. But with Sabarimala, I don't think that standard is being applied. Again, I'm not saying it should be applied, but I don't see it being applied. And that's where you get into this unequal application of the law for different faiths. Is it established that who established the fact that these restrictions aren't part of the faith? And if they are part of the faith, is that does that trump constitutionality? You know, the ag- agnostic atheist in me would say, look, dude, I don't care what your faith says. That's just me. I don't care what your faith says. You have to allow people in. But again, I'm not the constitution. And I'm definitely not the practice of law. It's the practice of law, which I find the practice of judgments, which I find has been slightly, you know, slightly kept different standards for, for different religions in this, in this case. Um, so that's, that's really the point. I, I, I wish that in case of triple talaq also, it should have been, you know, we don't care if it's against your faith. We're just not going to do it. But no, there, the main thing was you cannot support this with your faith. I remember seeing a few you know, discussions where a lot of, uh, in intellectuals, Muslim intellectuals came, and all of them kept on saying that this is not even Islamic. This is not even Islamic. It's not even, in a way, from a secular point of view, it shouldn't matter if it was Islamic or not. It shouldn't matter if Sabari Mala, there's there's faith or there's there's belief. So I think they have, people have some right to feel a little aggrieved at the verdict. But again, in terms of, I want to see how the court const- continuously maintains because it's not, and everybody knows that that, that, that in terms of religious you know, the government rights over religious land, there is, there are different rules. And and I feel that people, one thing that I always, always wonder is that the only thing on which I guess modern society has allowed discrimination is on the, on the basis of money. So you have first class, you have economy class, and you have like people demeaning. I, I, I read this Facebook post of an acquaintance of mine who said that uh, he mistakenly, he was flying in an aircraft, he was in economy class and he mistakenly used the first class bathroom. And, uh, you know, the, the the flight attendant took him out from the seat and made him apologize in front of the first class. Wow. You know, for like, yes. And so for me, this is like the height of being demeaned. But this is considered to be okay. This is considered to be okay in this day and age. I mean, this is this is the kind of story you would read about, like in in story of when you know when she tamed Chand, you know that kind of you know caste. But this caste is fine, as long as I think I think the logic that people say is that you are allowed. Everybody is free to make money, so you're not precluded from anything by virtue of your birth. That's BS, of course, because all of us know that the amount of money we make is absolutely dependent on on our birth. So it is absolutely linked 
to quote unquote our privilege. And I, I've seen this myself. I've seen discrimination. It's just such a horribly demeaning thing. But you know, it's okay because it's money. I've seen like 15-year-old boys, you know, walk into the first class bathroom where like senior citizens are just standing there kind of, you know, in the long, on a long transatlantic flight. Uh, they can't use that bathroom, even though you could see from their face that they have to, they can't, and and they and, and nobody cares. You know, it's, it's not a question of humanity. Uh, it's a question of he paid for it and you didn't, you know, screw you. So discrimination is there. Again, I've kind of deviated from where I started from because I wanted to make this point. But discrimination does happen uh, in a modern society. We, we allow discrimination based on money with the assumption that everybody can acquire money. And that's not strictly true. Also, So uh, moving on, moving on to, uh, or do you want to do the what song now? Yeah, yeah, we have a winner from last week. And I just wanted to, you know, get your opinion on the uh, on the song in question too. So last week, of course, we had the what song and uh, the answer was uh, Memsab from Miss 420. Yes. And our winner was Vinay Daji. Vinay, uh, you didn't send in your address yet. So please do send in your address and you'll be getting a book from uh, uh, from Arnab. Uh, Arnab, th- this was for a movie from the time when he was still a thing, right? I mean, we, we had, uh, I think it, this was, what, 90s, mid-90s? Yes, mid-90s. This was a time when Baba Segal, so there was a very flourishing indie pop scene at that point of time. And most most of you... Was Aja Meri Gadi Mein Bajja from the same movie? Yes, I think so. It was from the same movie. So this was Baba Segal. So Baba Segal was, uh, he was kind of one of the harbing. I mean, now Baba Segal has kind of become a parody of himself and, 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 and he likes that. So I don't think he's a serious artist anymore. And and I think he's, I think it's good. He's kind of adjusted uh, himself to the demands of today's world, which is, which is good for him. So he makes all this songs. I don't know if you've heard of going to the gym and stuff. So they're, they're not supposed to be taken seriously. I don't think Baba Segal ever was supposed to be taken seriously, but at one point of time, he was considered to be a serious artist. Of course, this is 1990s in which, you know, many things, if you looked back at 1990s, you wonder, well, what the hell were they thinking? But Baba Segal was, you know, he was, he started off with these, you know, really cheesy, horrible music videos, which were fun at that time. Uh, and, and they were new, they were fresh. And indie pop, this was when Channel V has started, MTV has started. So they used to get an enormous amount of playtime. So you would start and there would be Baba Segal doing Dil Dhar Ke with, with, with Puja Bedi. And then there was, uh, then he did one with maybe Madonna. I don't know if you've, if, if you've seen that. Then later on, he made another uh, one with Mehu Mehu Manjula, and I remember during our high secondary chemistry lab uh, you know, exam, I, I, they, they used to give some salt, and you had to identify that salt. And uh, I got calcium carbonate. Okay, that's one of the easiest <laughs> ones to identify. So uh, I knew immediately it was calcium carbonate. I, I did all these experiments, knowing very well I knew what was going to come out. And I remember I was so relaxed that I started singing that song. Because the, in, in the video, there was a guy who was doing a chemistry experiment, if you've ever seen the video. So, uh, but, but then uh, he became like, he suddenly became serious, quote unquote, when he got a song in an A.R. Rahman movie. Right. Which was Rukmini Rukmini. Yes. So that was when he went from this, you know, there was another guy who was his competitor at that point of time. His name was Voodoo Rapper. Uh, his his main shtick was he would rap wearing a mask. And then at the end of the video, he would take off his mask to show another mask. 
so so this was where he came from and then he 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 became he he did rukmini rukmini and then for some reason he thought he would be a hindi movie star i don't know who got it into his head but and this was minus 420 was i think his first and only foray as a headliner of course it bombed but it had fairly baba sahegalish music at that for that time so that was i i kind of liked the i kind of liked the music i kind of liked baba sahegal's personality also in those days i mean he was I mean, he was a little. You couldn't take him seriously. And in those days, I mean, I mean, music stars were a little different. I mean, they would come with shawls and they would like gargle with hot water before singing, and <clears throat> and then they would do riyas. And he wasn't like that. He was for that day and age. He was, you know, pretty new age. So there was. Uh, I remember one of my um, my personal story. People say you know, they like personal stories. So uh, when I was in, uh, I used to study in, in a school called South Point High School, which was. Uh, at one point of time it was the biggest school in the world so we used to hear in those days you had no way of you know verifying these things and then it became dropped down to biggest school in asia to second biggest school in asia but anyway so in class 12 i remember one of our physics professors who said who was a legend anjun dash gupta uh one day he called me to a staff room and said uh, what do you think of baba sahib and this was a really strange question coming from nowhere because he was like kind of like a quasi serious physics teacher he was the most powerful person in our school and he asks me what do you think of baba sagal so you know in a very you know i was always very honest and open with my opinions so i said i really like baba sagal and he said you seriously like baba sagal can you sing me a song of baba sagal and i did sing the first two paragraphs of dil dharke for him standing in the staff room <laughs> ये कोई नहीं बोलता है मैं भी नहीं बोलोगे तूने कैसे जाना मेरे यारीपेट anyways uh fun times <laughs> okay so from that uh from my own personal experience with the baba moving on to a feature story uh for this week uh a pretty big thing happened in the us so let's try to explain let's try to get our heads around what happened for those of you who are interested in, in in us politics uh i think this would be interesting so brett kavanaugh as many of you know got got confirmed as a supreme court judge i mean possibly the most uh tumultuous i mean there was one other case in the 90s uh during the anita hill controversy uh when uh, justice clarence thomas uh there was a similar there was very similar a thing that happened while he was being confirmed when uh when a lady in those days was very different world in those days uh, she she accused uh justice clarence thomas of you know sexually explicit conversations and you know innuendos um and justice clarence thomas uh, his response to it was basically what brett kavanaugh did but a little lot toned down but he you know said that he was being victimized and that this was a high tech lynching that was a very famous word and he and he did he was obviously he's also a conservative judge and he got confirmed now in order for you to, i mean i'm not going to go into the details of but in most of you have been following this but the interesting thing is why was it so important 
for Brett Kavanaugh to get confirmed. The fact that they were not willing to wait, the fact that they were in a desperate, even when all these things came up in this DNA, you had a very, very credible witness, very credible witness who was in a public deposition. And even the Republicans, I mean, nobody could basically question. It was such a watertight kind of argument. Which, of course, there were gaps in what she said. You know, she can remember who, who drove her there. And that's where they, they really undermined her testimony later. But the fact was that she came off as extremely credible. Uh, and yet, in this day and age, you would think that should basically kill someone. And there were a lot of other accusations which came about. Pretty consistent accusations of who Brett Kavanaugh had been. And that kind of tallied with the kind of, you know, you always have to look at somebody and say, you know, is this likely that this person was this guy? And it was very likely, given where he went to school, his background, that Brett Kavanaugh did the things he was accused of having done. I'm not saying the attempted rape, but the fact that he was drunk most of the time, that he was this wild partier, and that there's most likely uh, elements in his life where he is where he's done things which he should not be proud of or which he has forgotten or thinks he has forgotten. Uh, his, there was things in his, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there were things in his, in his yearbook, uh, Vikram, I don't know if it's in, in his yearbook entry, which basically said he's done a, a male, male, female threesome. Uh, the devil's something, right? The devil's triangle. That's pretty standard. So again, when he, when they wrote the yearbook, they didn't know that one day he would want to become a Supreme Court judge. So they went ahead and wrote those things. And the, the fun about it is that in the deposition, he's obviously lying under deposition when he says that <laughs> he doesn't know what it means. Or what did he say? It was, it was a drinking game. That's what he said. So, but before we get to, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, and should he have been confirmed, let's look at what really was at stake? So, right now, the Republican Party. So, Brett Kavanaugh is important to the Republican Party. He's not so important to Donald Trump. He's important to Donald Trump in a way because for Donald Trump, this is so there is the classical Republican Party, okay, which is uh, represented by everybody that was in the room. And then there's Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not really, and I've said this before, he's not really a Republican. He's, he's an independent guy who's kind of clamped onto the Republican platform, which is why a lot of Republicans are like disgusted with him. They're leaving the party. He doesn't really represent anything except his own self-interests. He's just found that the Republicans are a, a, are a better festering wound for him to, you know, basically cling to. And he's done that. In this case, that's what he did. He, during the elections, during you know the the, the 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 Republican Party was basically allied against him, and he took them down one by one, one by one, one guy bigger than the other. So it's not that his that his ideology has always um, tallied with the Republican ideology. This is an again in a, in a previous podcast I discussed this. This is really where the whole root of the quote unquote Russian collusion comes from that. He wasn't going to, he's not very rich himself. That's why he doesn't show his tax returns. So in order to get money, in order to get the resources to run a presidential campaign, there was nobody in the U.S. who was going to give him that because he has a reputation of being a crook, um, of, of, of basically cheating people of money multiple times. He's been sued multiple times and lost. So there was not really a lot of people who wanted to finance him in the U.S. 
And most of the big money bags who are aligned with the Republican platform had already given their money to Bush um, and to Ted Cruz, who they felt were more classical Republicans, who would push the Republican ideology. With Donald Trump, they had no idea what his ideology was because he's never had one. He still doesn't. And his own ideology is advancing himself and his family. Everything else he doesn't really care for. So there are really three things that the Republican platform, in order to consolidate their hold on America, that they really care for. In order to understand why this has become very important for Republicans, around 2008, when when, when Obama won, a lot of Democrats like like Mushfiqur Rahman, Mushfiqur Rahim, they, they kind of prematurely exalted and said, this is the end of the Republicans forever. That, that you know, changing demographics of America with minorities uh, and immigration is going to change the whole population constitution. And then, you know, Republicans, the party of old white rich men will never win again. That they've basically, this is the, this is it. This, and the problem with saying that is firstly, it's not true. And secondly, is it immediately pushes everybody else into a corner. It makes the majority feel like they're the minority. And that's when the Republicans again started making a comeback in the midterms. That, that's really, <laughs> they brought it on themselves by making this. And so the Republicans, of course, realized this is this is not, this sounds alarmist, but this could be true unless and until they took steps. So for the Republicans, the dog whistle, their mandir banayenge, is Roe versus Wade, which is, uh, which is a, it was a judgment in the Supreme Court. Which uh, it, the simple thing is, it banned abo- it, it, it. It basically made abortion legal, but technically, what it did is, in the American system, the way it is that states are extremely powerful. They can pass state laws, which which basically supersede federal laws. So you could have federal laws and you can have state laws. So the states in America are very, very independent. So state laws vary a lot. Um, and that's, that's something really special about America. For instance, in India, when you move from, let's say, uh, Bengal to Bomb- Maharashtra, or in West Bengal to Maharashtra, you don't, get to ne- you don't have to get another license, right? Am I right, Vikram? Um, you have to sure. a license? Okay. I don't know, but... But in the U.S. you do, and every state has different different standards of driving licenses. Okay, so in many cases you can transfer a driving license from one state to another. In many cases you have to go and get get another test done. Yeah, so uh, so 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 states have because I don't recall when I had my driving license in India whether it was it, it, whether it was driven by the by West Bengal or whether it was just a driver's license. So I don't really know if a, if a driver's license in Bing, you can transfer it. But in any case, the thing is that the American states have far more rights. And so what Roe versus Wade did was it uh, disallowed conservative states from banning abortion. It said that they basically took away the rights of the state to legislate against abortion. It's a simplistic explanation, but this is, this is really what Roe versus Wade comes down to. Roe versus Wade and subsequent challenges to it. Now, this for the conservative white Christian base, that's really the core of the Republican Party. This is the equivalent of the Ram Mandir for them. This has been the most emotive issue. Uh, Obviously, you can understand that Donald Trump, by his very nature, since everything revolves around him, couldn't care less for Roe versus Wade. As a matter of fact, given his lifestyle and his tendency of having unprotected sex with women, 
um, he should be for abortion. And actually, he used to be at one point of time. Uh, it made perfect sense for him at that point of time when he was more into the dating scene. But now, of course, he isn't, so he's, he's fine with that. But for the core Republicans, the Roe versus Wade, they have to overturn that. And Brett Kavanaugh, with Brett Kavanaugh now, they have a, a, a conservative majority. This is very important to them. At least that's what they show their base. Now, the real reasons, there are two other real reasons why they want conservative justices. They'll say other things that, you know, we need a conservative justice to, uh, you know, overthrow Obamacare, which is, but that that's not the real song. The real song is that there are two things which are absolutely essential for the Republicans to survive and to thrive in a, in a country where demographics is changing. One thing is they need the electoral college. Electoral college is what the present system in the U.S. is, and it's not proportional representation. So Trump, for instance, did not win the popular vote, but he won the presidency because of the electoral college. So they, so they see a challenge to the electoral college coming, if a legal challenge to the electoral college coming. And again, in, in America, you can, you can control the House and the Senate and, be, and have the president, but whatever laws they can make can be overturned or supported by the Supreme Court. So that's, that's a check and balance. So they really want all the institutions to be Republican. And since these are lifetime, these are lifetime appointments, it doesn't matter whether they lose elections, they will still have a predominantly Republican court. So this is really their hedge, their 40, 50 year hedge against the changing demographics of the US. That's why this is so important for them. That is why they went all out batshit crazy over this guy, because he was for them the exact kind of candidate they need. Because there have been many Republican uh, justices, I've forgotten, I've forgotten what his name is right now, but who've kind of strayed Democratic from time to time. Uh, this was the guy who was appointed by Bush, the name ex uh, escapes me for now. But they want somebody who's solidly, solidly Republican. So that, you know, there are two other things which have, one is that the Republicans have been trying to gerrymander. So gerrymandering is a term in which they basically change the constituencies of voting so that they can win votes. So if there are a lot of people who they know are historically Democrat, for instance, African-Americans, Hispanics, poor people, they will put them into one constituency, all of them, so that, okay, they will win that, but they will carve out all the constituencies which they think they will win and keep the proportion of traditional Democrat vote voters as low as possible. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, I think John Oliver did a program on this once where they really showed, you know, how crazily they, they draw the maps. You see two islands with a little bridge between them. OK, so that's how they have to do the district in order to get. Now, these laws are normally passed by the state, but they can again be overthrown by the Supreme Court. So the hype, so the Texas could allow that, but then it could be challenged in the Supreme Court. But again, if you have a Brett Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court, that it's not going to go down in the Supreme Court. So this is really very important for the Republican Party to keep their power. The third thing is Citizens United. So Citizens United is, again, was a Supreme Court decision that basically gave, uh, allowed companies 
for corporations to be recognized as individuals. And so the ability of co companies to make donations was given the same right as, indi for, as individuals. It was a company is, is exercising its right of expression as if a company is, is a human being. Essentially, you know, forget that shit. Essentially, the thing was it allowed it allowed what's known as dark money, black money, I mean, dark money. So in America, as, as all of us know, corruption has always been legalized. <laughs> Unlike it's in India, so you have lobbyists essentially, um, you know, legalized corruption. But at least there is some accountability. You know, you, you can go, you can, you can check who's donated to who. So that in that case, there is transparency. So there's nothing which prevents the gun lobby from donating an insane amount of money to so-and-so candidate. And then that guy totally supports the gun lobby. That's considered to be absolutely okay. But at least you can go online and see that, okay, the gun lobby has paid in this amount of money. So obviously supports everything the gun lobby does. That's, that's the transparent part, not the fact that they can do it. So what Citizens United did was essentially allowed through different modus operandi, the ability to corporations to donate as much money as they wanted. Before that, there were some checks and balances in place. And the Republicans, they are funded to a large extent by a very few uh, really, really rich people. And one in name which many people would have heard was, was the, the yep. Koch brothers. Uh, they're kind of a, you know, a libertarian uh, brothers who are extremely, extremely rich in their they basically support any any legislation or any political uh, candidate who wants to loosen regulations, who wants to reduce the role of the state. Uh, so they've obviously been aligned, of course, with uh, the Republican Party, and they've always been against the Bernies of the world, the, the socialists. So these three things, these, these the, the Roe v. Wade is not so much a Republican, they don't sincerely believe it themselves, but this is for the base. Citizens United, gerrymandering, and the ability to basically have power inside the Supreme Court, irrespective of who wins. These are the things which made it this very, very important that Trump, as long as they have the House and the Senate, you know, have the two houses to make sure that their candidate makes it through. Because now, boom, after Saturday, they're set for the next 40 years, as long as, the, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is a fairly young guy. So he's going to, you know, he's going to be there for a while. I mean, that's the expectation. So this 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 brings us to really his bizarre performance. So Brett Kavanaugh, you know, in a way, it didn't really matter. At least for me, um, there was no way that this guy should have been made uh, a Supreme Court judge. Not purely based on how he behaved in front of the camera. Okay, so. A judge is, I mean, you have Democrat judges, you have conservative judges, but they are supposed to be neutral in terms of evaluating facts, providing evidence. That's, I mean, this is a job interview, right? In his job interview, he came across as unhinged and partisan. Now, he is that, of course. But as all of us know that we don't act ourselves in a job interview. If we do, then we won't get a job. That's usually what happens. So a job interview, you have to put up your best self. And if this was his best self, then God help the country. Because a judge, you know, he came out. And again, this was not that he, many people think, of course, he lost his temper. But he didn't lose his temper. This was a performance that he put up. This was a performance. He, and he was told to put this performance up for Donald Trump. Because again, Donald Trump doesn't care about the issues. He doesn't care about what, what the Republican Party is ultimately shooting for. What he cares for is absolute loyalty to himself. 
And at this point of time, he needs the Supreme Court because if the indictment comes for Russia, for for his quote-unquote collaboration with Russia, it's going to go to the Supreme Court and he needs a majority there to make sure he doesn't go to jail. So for him, this is important. Now his personal, his own, his personal future is now perfectly aligned with the Republican Party. Remember, in those cases where they're not aligned, the Republican Party finds it very frustrating in dealing with him. They don't like him. But this time, the first time, they kind of come together. So for them, the main thing they want to show Trump is, look, dude, you need to have this guy in order to keep yourself out of jail. That's it. That's what we're all fighting for, you know. So for that, that's why Trump was behind this guy. But then Trump being Trump, he, he kind of, you like, he wasn't really liking the guy because this guy wasn't, you know, he did, while he accepted the nomination, he kind of gave, gave a bow down to the king kind of speech. Oh, I love Trump. I love Trump. But again, I don't think Trump kind of felt it at that point of time. So when the when the confirmation came and when it was at his turn to speak, he basically appealed to Trump. He echoed everything that Donald Trump said. This was sending two messages. One that I'm going to support you in the court. Okay, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to support. I'm your man. I, I, I have, I mean, I have your back. This was what he was trying to say. So he went into this unhinged rant about this being a conspiracy hatched by people who were pissed off at him uh, because of his opposition to the Clintons. Again, you can say this, you can write this, you can do whatever you want. You're free to have your conspiracy theories, but not when you're auditioning to be a Supreme Court judge. Okay, that's the time when you cannot say these things without having evidence. And he just went ahead and said it in any ways. So this performance itself disqualifies him to be a judge. I don't care, Supreme Court judge, any judge. When you go in and you say a lot of unsubstantiated things, which you cannot prove, and you go ahead and say it in any case under deposition, well, what kind of a judge are you? In a way, it doesn't matter because he's shown his loyalty to the Supreme Ruler. So he's through. The FBI investigation that happened was, of course, I mean, they were supposed they were given seven days. They gave their report in five. So it was obviously a fixed. Everything was fixed. They, I mean, at all, the FBI could not even make a judgment. They just collected facts. They were given a very limited scope. And it was so obvious that, that Brett Kavanaugh, was not the person that he claimed to be under oath. He, when repeatedly, again, being a drunk or being a wild drunk while you were in your late teens or early 20s should not be considered to be a disqualifying factor to be a Supreme Court judge when you're 50 or 50. I get that. But the fact that you are lying about it, that under oath, that should disqualify you. And he did lie about it because it is very evident from anybody with half a brain reading that, that, that college yearbook thing where he's repeatedly, he's called out for puking and he, his explanation was he had a delicate stomach. So obviously he was having, like, I guess, a lot of tandoori chicken and he was, no, he was, he was like puking drunk. That's the kind of drink. There's this, uh, you, you know, that whole dedication to him is 
he is this cool guy who is so drunk that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's been with like another guy, and so, so he that impression. And and again, there have been multiple people in this last week who came out. They were they were his friends in Yale, and they said, yeah, that was the guy he was. His roommate said, you know, that I can't corroborate what he did with Doctor Ford. Of course, we don't know about anything about that. But I know he's lying about the fact that he didn't drink. And then you know, I like beer. You know, I still like beer. I've never been drunk that I can't remember. No, he was not like that. And, you know, his social his, his social context wasn't like that either. You know, people party in undergrad over here. And quote-unquote partying, you know, one part of it is being drunk. And we're talking about people in, like, privileged rich people in Yale in the middle 80s. So, of course, what he did for those days was normal. And again, he could have fessed up to and said, sure, I was drunk. I mean, are you sure I passed out? Uh, but I didn't, uh, you know, I, I could still claim I didn't do, do, do what I'm being accused of. And you have to prove it in a court of law, whatever. But no, he went and kept claiming that I wasn't drunk. I was always in control. And I had a little bit of drink once in a while. Well, who, who doesn't? That was really his tone. You know, I like beer. You like beer. Do you like beer? That was what he said. Remember, I don't know if you saw it, but he said, do you like beer? Um, do you remember stuff? So the, 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 the whole demeanor of him was just the most unjustice-like. And this is for a lifetime appointment uh, in, in a Supreme Court. And this guy is going to influence, really, the course of pretty much everything, every big thing that happens in the U.S. So this is very important. This is a huge defeat for Democrats. Massive defeat. And this defeat will last I mean, Trump might go, but he will be here. Brett Kavanaugh will be here. And it was really surprising. Not that surprising, but it's like the way America has changed over the last few years from being a quite a decent democracy to essentially be, being almost a dictatorship in, in, in the way that a Supreme Court judge is almost bowing and kneeling to the president and trying his best, given the time he has, to convince him that, look, man, I will do everything for you. And why is this happening? This, this is happening because despite what the media would tell you, Trump is insanely popular in the US. Okay, So when people say Trump, you know, his, 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 his approval ratings are low, what they forget is that Trump might have low approval ratings, but the people who are approving of him are dedicated bucks, like true bucks. They will go to the polls. They will do what he asks him to. They are motivated people. It's not, I support Trump, but you know what? I'm not going to go to the vote. I'm not going to be an activist. Though These people actually, actually believe in him. So the Trumpians, and this is the kind of personality cult, which at least I haven't seen in the US. I mean, there are a lot of people who were fans of Obama. You know, a lot of people are fans of him. Oh, wow, look how smart he is, how nice he talks. You know, we love to listen to him. And it's true. You love to listen. He's a, he's a smart guy. His smartness kind of flows out of him. You can see that this guy is an extremely intelligent person. But there were very few people, even among his base, who were this level, had this level of fandom for Obama. There was not this level. So when you say that he has a low approval rating, even the Republicans know it. The Republicans don't like him in any shape or form. And we have seen that multiple times when you know, basically the old Republican guard is just, they've just moved away. But Trump, and you have to 
admire the fact that he has actually gotten his stuff done. He's put Supreme Court justices, the kind of people that he wants. He's passed tax reform. Despite the fact that there is, you know, a lot of confusion, but he's kind of a disruptor. And I personally don't like him. That should be evident. (laughs) But I have to applaud him for, you know, the effectiveness in pushing his agenda. Now, this might be the wrong agenda for the country, but that doesn't mean it's not his agenda. It doesn't mean that he has let his base down. Trump has not let his base down. And this is an interesting thing because I see that a lot of Indians in Indians in America, they really love Trump. <laughs> and I think they, they compare him in many ways to Modi. I don't think the comparison is fair. I think Modi is a very different leader from Trump. Firstly, first of all, he's, he's you know, his, his economic policies have been extremely socialist, big government. Okay, so he hasn't lowered taxes, you know, the way Trump has. He's very, very, very different Trump. I mean, he has been, there's not been, economically, there's not been much difference between him and the Congress. And, you know, essentially the, the model of the Indian welfare state that we have so grown to love. But the fact is that they love about Trump that many, many Indians, many right-wing Indians are especially pissed off at the fact that they feel that Modi has not done enough for the core right-wing in India. That he's kind of, you know, appropriated the platform, gone on, been a center in the middle of this. And I think that's fine. That That's really the way a prime minister should be. A prime minister, you know, they can say whatever they want to get elected, but once... Uh, they take power, everybody has to go to the center. That's why I'm a centrist too, because the only thing that works in this world is centrism. None of the extremes really work, because if you get to the extremes, you'll have revolution. So it's it's important that our leaders, no matter what they say, because all leaders have to get elected, that ultimately they pivot to the center. With With the exception of Trump, the reason why he's so disruptive, the why the world hates him, that they're laughing at him in the United Nations, is because this guy hasn't pivoted to the center. He has kept it to the right. And he's consistently, just the last two years, kept it consistently to the right. And this is something which many, and I'm not just talking about the Indian right, I mean, India, I'm pretty sure that many people in the world admire him for his, let's say, his, his adherence to the cause, that he hasn't changed. Um, he hasn't changed in the way he talks. He hasn't, you know, he's he's abrasive. He's nasty. And for many people, this is the, you know, this is why they hate Trump. But this, again, in this day and age, it's important that, it's not so important that you be likable to everyone. It's actually more important that if you be absolutely hated by a few people, because then you will definitely have a certain number of people on your side and they will become your, your devotees. And Trump has devotees. And I think that with this Brett Kavanaugh, I think his position has become strong. I don't know what will happen in the midterms. Um, you know, there might be, you know, definitely be more. I don't know whether it will be a blue wave. Again, I, I'm not that plugged into the U.S. to know exactly what's going to happen in terms of, uh, you know, predicting. But Trump, this Saturday, has possibly he's at the height of his power at this point of time, with Brett Kavanaugh getting confirmed, the tax bill being passed. Yes, there's a Russia investigation going on, which has been going on as you can see for a great number of years. So God knows when they will even come up with an indictment if they even do. But Trumpism is at its height. Now, whether it's a good or bad, I leave you to judge. So moving on to the final item that I wanted to discuss, is a slightly lighter item, I would say, is that it's Durga Puja. So happy Durga Puja, everyone. Um, I'm, of course, missing Durga Puja. 
uh, over here in the U.S. And many people say, but why do you miss Durga Puja? You're in L.A. I mean, there's so many Durga Pujas going around you. But trust me, man, I don't want to go to Durga Pujas in the U.S. Because for me, the, the, very, the reason why I love Durga Puja is I like it because of the lights. I like it because of the food. I like it because of the moment you go out in Calcutta, there's this whole, you know, this, this is life around you. You just feel, you just kind of breathe in the life that's everywhere, the joy, and it lifts you up. Okay, so just, just walking, going from one panel to another, just lifts you up, the music. That's really what Durga Puja is. You know, man, also meeting friends, you know, being in, 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 in comforting environs. That's really what Durga Puja is, not so much the Durga Puja itself. And unfortunately in the US, you know, when you're expected, you know, to, uh, and, and I as a person, I don't, because of the other stuff I do, I really don't have time to engage with the local community. I mean, if I'm engaged with the local community, if I'm part of the, you know, celebration of Durga Puja, putting it together, I totally understand why it's so exciting. There was a time when I went to uh, a Durga Puja, they invited me, they invited me gracefully, uh, gratefully also, it's the only time anybody invited me in the US to it. In, in any place. Uh, oh, you know, they did invite me once to Bongo Shomelon. That's another story. But uh, I went to this Amadeh Pujo in, in Toronto and I was really, really loved this because I really loved, that was the only time I really liked going to Durga Puja because I, I was part of the organization, the organizing committee. You could see how much how much it mattered to them and I could feel that their happiness coming through. I mean, I, I got that feeling that there was a close-knit group of people who were doing this, who had been doing it for the past month. You know, they're all professionals. They come home from work and they rush to do these organization committee meetings and they do things. And I totally understand it for them. But for me, um, since I'm not part of that, you know, ah, no, I just, I've been there before. I, I drive to these places. I don't know anyone there. I pay my, you know, card donation. Uh, and uh, within five minutes, basically, it's over for me. I mean, what is there? I don't know anyone. The people who are talking about mortgage rates and you know, at that point of time when I used to go DSLR cameras. And uh, I just look at them, like smile, and uh, maybe I'll recognize someone uh, from my Jadavpur University days. And that's it. But he's moved on. I haven't talked to him for the last 22 years. So I have no idea. You know. So we'll talk about some professors and that's it. 10 minutes of conversation. And then I'm like, what next? So this is in, in a way it's depressing for me because I feel bad because I can't go back to India at this point of time. Also, my daughter has started attending school here and uh, in LA USD, which is the school district that I am in currently, Vikram. I tell you, man, one thing that I always used to think was that in, in, in the US, the academic pressure is less. I was wrong. Now that I have a five-year-old daughter, at least in the LA school district, in kindergarten, she's in kindergarten, and the pressure, the schoolwork is unbelievable. I remember when I was her age in South Point High School in Calcutta, where the pressure was intense. This was nothing like this. They have every day, they have homework, they have classwork, they have tests in class, and they have programming assignments. Yes, my daughter is five years old. She's doing programming assignments. Just wait till they start assigning projects. Then even you and your wife will be busy. 
no, no, we are busy. We have to be. I mean, again, we are. We, 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 there's some stuff that the has to. Do. I mean, like cut out fifty pieces of triangles from a magazine. <laughs> right, a diorama and stuff. Yeah. First of all, where do you get a magazine nowadays? We don't have a piece of paper anymore. So, <laughs> first thing was to get a magazine. Second was to cut out you know, 50, there were 10 triangles, then, you know, 20 squares. And this is, she's five years old. And then her programming assignments, and I mean, they're all gamified, of course. But then I see what they're trying to teach her. They're teaching her nested for loops. Say, like, what? This is, a, this is not an easy concept. Not a, for a five-year-old to understand what nested for loops are. But that's really what they're trying to teach them, nested for loops. So, and, and as part of that, and this is a realize is that, you 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 cannot like go during the school year anywhere so 10 10 days is the maximum number of holidays you get like which are not sick days that's it so <laughs> that means pretty much that i will not be seeing durga puja in india for years <laughs> so it's it's been a particularly depressing time for me to realize that uh but um also the fact that Uh, I've never been able to kind of become uh, an American Bengali. Uh, that's also a regret on my part that Durga Puja unfortunately means nothing to me here anymore. I mean, it never did, but now I feel bad about it. Maybe I should have done something different. Anyways, with that tone of regret, let's end this today's podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, happy Durga Puja to all too. And yeah. Uh... I look forward to visiting at least a couple of pandals. It's not a big thing in Hyderabad, but uh, I do go to the one in Kisai school and a couple of other ones nearby for the food. So look forward to that. Yeah, so that that you can go here, you can have, like you can go there for the food, but... I, I know I just, what you mean, yeah. It's not the complete experience. You know, driving, driving an hour for food... uh not really you know driving an hour coming back driving an hour just for food with with for me the human the, the human factor is the most important thing without that without the essential humanity of the durga puja and again you don't really have to know people just being in a place in a huge place a lot of happy people moving from one place to another the lights the street food the street food everything that's what's part of it and you, you can say what well, you can do the same thing but it's the fact is it's kind of programmed to my past so when i do that it's really not me arna bray at 42 who's doing that it's arna bray at 22 who's doing it for me that that you know when you get older you basically your 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 happiness kind of comes when you know your notion of time kind of sinks down to this small part and over here even this fact of driving there coming back this is not the young arna bray stopped so that you know deconstructing that's really the <laughs> that's really the, that's really where the dissonance is um okay so uh thank you everyone uh for listening again uh, uh the twitter is at great bomb um and my blog is greatbomb.net arnab i think uh, you'd be happy to know that we have we are going live at least partly live with the new landing page for the blog so you can find the podcast at talkingstuff.net/app that's attention please podcast so talkingstuff.net/app and uh, we've revamped the entire landing page uh, you will be able to easily listen to it online download it subscribe to it so just let us know it's there there, there are still some rough uh, edges i would say so do le- let us know about your feedback as well and you can send in your feedback to 
appodcast at talkingstuff.net. Of course, I am available on Twitter at the Vikram Mohan, and the, the network is on us at talkingstuff.net. So again, the URL for the podcast is talkingstuff.net/app. Please do send in your feedback and uh, let us know what works and what doesn't. And we are very we are very excited about uh, getting this right. So that's pretty much it this week. Uh, a little late, but uh, yeah, we should be out uh, later today. So okay, thanks a lot. Thanks. See you everyone next week. Bye.